Hello and welcome to episode 103 of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. This month, which is the first in something like five years with no CJ McKinney, sob, sob, um, I'm starting with some material on asylum, a quick mention to a Supreme Court case on trafficking, going to cover a bit of immigration and nationality history and why it matters today, going to move on to various bits of Home Office news and end with a couple of items on deportation and foreign national offenders. So I'm covering um, things that took place in July 2022 and if you want to claim CPD points for reading the material, listening to the podcast, then sign up at freemovement.org.uk slash training where we've got tons and tons of CPD hours of training for you. Right, so to begin with, I'm covering a case called SR Sri Lanka against Secretary of State for the Home Department. Uh, citation 2022 EWCA Civ 828. And it's a court of appeal case where uh, essentially they're considering somebody who's been attending demonstrations in the UK and then using that um, as part of his claim for um, asylum, saying that this placed him at risk. Now, he wasn't really believed by the judge at the first tier. And essentially, the judge had held that it was contrived and um, it wasn't going to place him at risk. So he appealed unsuccessfully to the upper tribunal, goes up to the Court of Appeal, and the Court of Appeal gives all of these things, um, all of these arguments, quite a good airing, uh, ultimately decides that the there's nothing wrong with the first tier determination. They do emphasise that the case is perhaps a bit unusual and that there will be circumstances where even if somebody has carried out what are sometimes called bad faith activities that may still give rise to a real risk of persecution if they're sent to a given country. It doesn't matter why there's a real risk of harm. It's it's whether there is or there isn't a real risk. And also that um, people can't be expected to lie if they're sent back. So, you know, if there's a risk of them being questioned at the airport on arrival and that they're uh, demonstration activities, even if carried out in bad faith, would then emerge, then they may have a, a claim for asylum. And there's a, a short, I'm just going to quote from the short concurring judgment by Lord Justice Underhill. So this isn't the main judgment in the case, but it's quite a nice pithy sentence to sort of summarise the, the law. It is well established, he says, that in some circumstances, an applicant for asylum can, however unpalatable this may be, rely on surplus activities undertaken opportunistically and without genuinely holding the political opinions that are said to put them at risk on return. And that that's sort of a, a, an echo of a, a very early case, asylum case called Danian. So um, it's a fairly sort of long established bit of law. Okay, I'm going to move on now to a European case. Uh, it's called Safi and Others Against Greece, application number 5418-15. And the events in this case, which are, are really very distressing indeed, date back to the 20th of January um, 2014, when a Greek Coast Guard patrol encountered a small fishing boat carrying 27 passengers from Turkey. So it's early in the year, it's dark, it's night time, weather is poor, the boat has reached Greek waters and it contains a mix of Afghan, Syrian and Palestinian men, women and children. And the Coast Guards, who were aboard a speedboat with no rescue equipment, attached a tow line to the boat, started to tow it away from Greece back towards Turkey. The, the tow line actually broke off the boat once and they reattached it. And then eventually, for whatever reason, the, the passengers, the surviving passengers, because several died, claimed that it was, it was far too fast. In any event, the boat overturned. 11 of the passengers drowned in the ensuing chaos. 
Um, and, and essentially, they, they hadn't been provided with life jackets. And the Coast Guards had obviously, uh, you know, put them at a very high level of risk. And it doesn't even end then. Um, the survivors were, were fished from the water, taken to Greece, where they were publicly stripped and cavity searched in public. And it, it, essentially, this the, the court looks at this, holds that there was a violation of the right to life of those who drowned. And there was a violation of the protection against degrading treatment of the survivors. And there were also procedural human rights breaches in the way that it was investigated or rather not investigated by the Greek authorities. So it's, it's a really horrible case um, about Greek pushbacks. M- you know, most pushbacks, I think it would be fair to say, aren't quite such a severe set of facts where people are so obviously endangered. But, you know, there's a clear risk if, if, um, if border guards start to dehumanise the people that they're dealing with, that that sort of thing may happen. Now, moving on to small boat crossings um, in the English Channel, there were a couple of reports that were published on um, basically how badly the Home Office is handling these. I, I think it's it's worth saying before going further that the Home Office has undoubtedly been handling this badly in some senses, but there've also you know there have been very few drownings, there have been very few deaths in the Channel, and very substantial numbers of people crossing. And if you contrast that with what's been going in in the Mediterranean. Um, I think the Coast Guards, the Home Office officials and the the, the Navy officers as well um, and, and crews who've been trying to help people in the channel have been doing an amazing job, basically, and that there have been mercifully few drownings so far. And compare that to you know over 20,000 who've drowned in the Mediterranean since 2014. So, yes, it's been handled badly, but there are I think it's worth praising the work of those who've actually been at sea trying to help these people and stop them from drowning. So there's two reports. One is from the Chief Inspector of Borders and Immigration, who uses very strong language about the Home Office operation on the shore, saying that it was inexcusably awful, that Home Office performance was poor, and that while staff on the ground have been doing their best, they're tired, there are high volumes, they're under-resourced, they've been missing obvious indicators of vulnerability, and also because of that, uh, in part, failing to follow up where there was potential intelligence gathering to be done um, and so on as well. So there's security lapses and safeguarding failures. So it, it, it paints a really poor picture of the onshore operation at the Home Office, despite you know really hard work being put into this by the officials concerned. They just do not have the resources to manage it adequately. There's a second review by a man called Alexander Downer, who was Australia's Minister for Foreign Affairs between 96 and 2007, apparently. And as I understand it, um, he was later ambassador to the UK and he was intimately closely involved with the Australian offshoring project. I know, having read through his review, I got the impression he was unimpressed that so many lives had been saved and he felt the Navy shouldn't be involved because it was doing too good a job in that respect, basically. It's um, it's a review that was commissioned by Priti Patel. Whether it will lead to anything, I really, really don't know. But um, it's critical of the Home Office in, in other senses, I think, than just the sort of day-to-day operational sense, also the kind of organisational structure and culture and recruitment. And there's, there's a lot more that's covered there. Okay, moving on to um, Supreme Court's decision in the case called Basfar against Wong. Now, that's citation 2022 UKSC 20. And um, there's a really good write-up by Alison Harvey on the blog um, about a migrant domestic worker who was, I think there's been a, a positive decision now by the Home Office that she was trafficked um, by a, a member of diplomatic staff from, I think, Saudi Arabia. 
And the court case is all about whether um, exploitation of somebody in that way could conceivably be exempt, essentially, from prosecution in the UK, whether it amounted to a commercial activity, in, in which case... Um, the person wasn't exempt from prosecution or from legal action in the UK. And the majority, it's a split decision, which is fairly unusual with the modern Supreme Court. The majority held that it was a commercial activity because of the commercial benefit to the person who was doing the exploitation, who benefited to the tune of the difference between the kind of slave labor type wages that were being paid and the, the the normal rate that somebody would have been paid otherwise. Um, so it's an interesting decision on that. It, it's only a kind of procedural decision in a sense, because um, it was actually flows from a strikeout decision in the employment tribunal. Um, so it still has to be fully litigated, um, but a, an interesting one and a, a positive step forward. I think it's considered um, in trafficking cases where um, you've, you've got migrant workers employed by diplomats. Um, I wanted to give a quick mention to a compensation case that was unsuccessful. Um, it's the Syrian refugee who lost their high court bid to get um, their immigration appointment fee refunded. And essentially, they were unable to get one of the free biometrics appointments. And so they they forked out for it instead. The man forked out for it, paid £440 for a paid appointment, um, despite already having very, very little money and being at risk of eviction for non-payment of rent at the time. And this was for his family members. The court ultimately held that this particular individual had jumped the gun and that he actually had longer than he realised to wait for a biometrics uh, appointment. But um, the court also heard that there were 11,600 refugees who had ended up forking out um, for for paid appointments. Basically, the court held that that, that, that that number can't have been because they all got it wrong. They, they can't all have um, jumped the gun. And it, it looks like simply the Home Office was not making enough um, free appointments available. And therefore, some other people might have better cases for, for compensation. So worth thinking about. Okay, a couple of posts on, on history. Now, the, the first of these, um, I published on the, the 1st of July, and it, it was to mark that it that the, the fact that 60 years ago that day, that the Commonwealth Immigrants Act 1962 first came into effect, which was a massively, massively important landmark piece of immigration and I think nationality, ultimately, um, legislation in the UK. And for the first time, it essentially prevented some British subjects from being able to enter Britain, you know, the country of their nationality. I'm not going to go over the, the material in the post, but if you're interested in um, how important that legislation worked, the really weird mechanism that the government of the day adopted in order to impose these immigration controls, um, really uh, nationality controls in a way as well, although they're always framed as, as, as immigration controls, um, then, then take a look at that um, blog post. I say I'm not going to go through it in detail now. But but that is a, a useful kind of segue into a post by Alex Finch about a nationality law change that came in recently under the Nationality and Borders Act 2022. And this is the new new section 4L of the um, 1981 Act, which has been inserted into the, into the 1981 Act, which essentially allows registration as British of adults for the first time. So if you're a nationality law um, practitioner, uh, if you do these cases, you'll be familiar perhaps with the um, discretionary power to register any child anywhere as being British, although subject to to, to quite severe policy constraints. Well, a, a similar but not the same sort of power has been introduced for adults. 
And if the Secretary of State is of the opinion that somebody would have been or would have been able to become a British citizen, but for historical legislative unfairness, an act or omission of a public authority, or exceptional circumstances relating to them, and then they can be registered as British. So it's a really interesting one. And there's a, a post, as I say, by Alex Finch about the circumstances that might uh, be applicable there. And it's a bit wider than certainly I had thought. So it, it's worth taking a look at anyway. Right, I said I was going to cover a few Home Office things. So I'm going to start with the Marapalli case, citation 2022 EWCA Civ 855. And this is another long residence case. We see a lot of long residence cases that end up in the Court of Appeal, particularly arguing about the way that Section 3C of the Immigration Act 1971 works, which in some circumstances automatically extends leave. And there's there's been loads of different arguments about the way that that interacts with the immigration rules and whether a migrant can get to the, the magic number of 10 years of continuous lawful residence um, in order to qualify for settlement. And you can see why people are, are really desperate, frankly, to, to, to qualify in that way, because it, it leads to a sort of permanent future in the country, rather than having to leave after all those years. I, you know, By its nature, people have been here for at least 10 years when they're making these kinds of arguments, and often quite a bit longer by the time it gets up to the Court of Appeal. But, um, you know, not many of these cases are ultimately succeeding, and this uh, is another of those. So the facts of the case don't really matter very much. It's um, it, it, it's it's another example of essentially a Section Three C being held not to, to to save somebody where they've been refused. I think that the, the argument had been about whether a notice of refusal had been unlawful and therefore their leave had carried on. But ultimately, it, it doesn't get the gentleman anywhere and he loses his case. So very bad news indeed for him. Right, moving on to another Home Office item. This is about the Home Office offering extensions to people who are denied settlement. So you, know, you make an application for settlement in um, a certain route. Uh, this can be Appendix Settlement Family Life, Appendix Private Life, uh, Appendix Innovator, and so on. There are several others. And um, you don't qualify in the view of the Home Office for settlement, but the Home Office instead uh, unilaterally decides to offer you an extension of stay in what's probably your your the, the same category that you're you're in at that moment in time. So there's a new policy all about this. It's worth looking if you're in this kind of situation. It, it's there's a good write up here by um, Bilal Shabir uh, for Freemont, one of our, our regular contributors. Um, the Home Office takes the view that there's no appeal here. I, I'm not a hundred percent sure that that's necessarily the case because if you don't get settlement and you're offered something else instead and you applied for settlement, then I think there's certainly an argument that that qualifies as a refusal, even if the Home Office doesn't recognise it as one, and therefore there may be a right of appeal. Now, I, I think there is some previous case law on this. I haven't dug it out. Uh, it's a kind of recurring issue. It comes up every so often. So I think it's um, if, if you're in this kind of situation, it's at least worth looking into and taking advice on because um, that there are some quite complicated arguments around that, and it may be worth putting in a, an attempted appeal with the tribunal anyway. Also want to quickly mention a case in which compensation was ordered for unlawful detention during the pandemic. Now, we, we often don't mention these unlawful detention cases because they're very fact-specific, but we, we flag this one up because it's an unusual example of quantum, um, the, the, the word that lawyers use for basically the, the level of damages that was awarded. And in this case, it was fairly high. We've seen higher awards, but it's fairly high. £17,500 for 40 days of unlawful detention. Um, so if, if you're interested in trying to, you know, if you're, if you're working 
working on our lawful detention cases, you're you're trying to work out what quantum might be, then take a look at um, the cases Abel Backer um, 2022 EWHC 1183 admin. There's a updated piece by our regular contributor Nath Gibikpi um, on in-country fee waivers. So it's an old post that um, Nath wrote quite some time ago and she's updated for us. Um, so if you're wanting the latest position on the circumstances in which the Home Office might potentially agree that you don't have to pay an in-country immigration fee, then that is a very, very good starting place. And I'd recommend you you go there and take a look. Right. Finally, on this month, I wanted to cover a couple of items on deportation and foreign national offenders. One is just a quick one. Um, it's a report that Charlotte Rubin has written up for us on GPS tagging, apparently not yet achieving its aims as far as the independent chief inspector of borders and immigration is concerned. It's the second of his reports that we've covered. Um, I think several of his reports were pushed out just before the parliamentary recess in the summer, basically. And it's it's quite an interesting read on basically what a uh, disaster in multiple ways the home office tagging system has been how it's evolved over time some material about the the new plans on basically as i understand it smart watches that would be removable but you'd have to scan your face five times a day home office has been trying to procure that for a couple of years now they've had to start again because of all sorts of other problems with it with security concerns with practicality concerns and so on and um you know the home office has apparently imposed this obligation on itself to monitor all foreign national offenders and yet they simply just don't have the resources or expertise um, to, to carry through on that. So that's a classic Home Office story in lots of ways. The final item is a, another Supreme Court decision, this one on the nature of the unduly harsh test in deportation cases. So this case is HA Iraq against Secretary of State for the Home Department's 2022 UKSC 22. And the main judgment is given by Lord Hamblin with the agreement of the rest of the panel. So it's a unanimous decision. This is a pretty big decision. It's a pretty long decision and it covers quite a lot of ground. The main thrust of it is essentially um, that the law is as it was previously stated. So this was a Home Office attempt to um, reverse a relatively recent Court of Appeal uh, ruling about the nature of the unduly harsh test. And basically, the, the earlier Court of Appeal ruling had undone this, this really odd sort of line of cases in the upper tribunal and indeed the Court of Appeal about what unduly harsh meant which was all taken from a single sentence of an earlier Supreme Court decision um, in the case of KO Nigeria, the sentence being that of Lord Carnwath, where he says that one is looking for a degree of harshness going beyond what would necessarily be involved for any child faced with the deportation of a parent. And various judges in the upper tribunal and the Court of Appeal had taken that to mean that you've got to have something akin to diagnosable psychiatric injury, just being you know, traumatised and upset that you're losing your parents just wasn't enough as far as the upper tribunal and the Court of Appeal being concerned. The Court of Appeal had belatedly revisited that and said, look, actually, that's that's not the right approach for, for various different reasons. Home Office wasn't happy about that and tried to get the Supreme Court to intervene and restore the, the harsher approach. 
um, ultimately that that fails. Um, so in some ways, the the headline here is that not much has changed. It's the law is as we thought it was uh, according to this this latest court of appeal decision. Um, so it's quite good news in that in, in that sense. And it's not to say that the unduly harsh test is a really easy one to satisfy. It really, really isn't. But at least it's not quite as bad as the upper tribunal and court of appeal and Home Office had previously been making out. Before I finish, I just mention that, that it's worth reading through um, the judgment and indeed that post which which I wrote up myself on other aspects of um, deportation as well. It covers also the meaning of very compelling circumstances, the relevance of rehabilitation, the relevance of criminal sentence and how one judges the seriousness of an offence and whether the sentence is kind of definitive in that, um, confirms the rewritten statutory scheme, uh, which is one of my little bugbears I keep on banging on about. I'm not going to bore you with it now. And uh, yeah, it, it's basically an important Supreme Court decision. And it's probably now one of our main reference points if we're dealing with deportation cases, if you're arguing this in in the first tier or the upper upper, upper tribunal. Okay, that finishes um, the posts for July 2022. I hope that update has been useful and be back next month. Goodbye. Goodbye.